Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 207, Christianity in Early Dane Law. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. You can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to new members Yousef, Chris, and Caitlin for signing up already. This is part two of our story about religion and religious life in the age of the great heathen army and the Danish invasion of Britain. Last episode, I told you about how the stories were often told of violent atrocities committed against Christian spaces and against Christendom itself didn't actually originate from the 9th century when they supposedly occurred, but only appear in our record during the 12th century, which was 200 years later and during the height of the Crusades. We spoke about how the idea of the pagan zealotry of the Vikings doesn't really align with the reports that we got later on that they converted to Christianity eagerly and easily. And I showed you how the archaeological and contemporary record doesn't comport with the popular story of a religious war against the Christians of Britain, a story that relies entirely upon records that were written centuries after the fact. As you've probably gathered, I'm very suspicious about these later records. However, not all of our records were recorded centuries later. We do have some contemporary records in the form of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. And while I don't believe we should use the actions of 8th century Vikinger bands as a model for how the great heathen army would have acted in the 9th century, I do think that those Vikinger strikes should be addressed, and for one very simple reason— They might illuminate how these religious houses tended to react to the raids. Lindisfarne remains one of the most brutal stories of a Viking raid that we have in any record. The holiest Anglo-Saxon site of the north was sacked, looted, and the monks were raped and murdered. The accounts of the attack were savage, shocking, and appear to have led the clergy of Britain to question what they had done to anger God. And let me say that again. It was so bad that people believed that this must have been the direct consequence of a vengeful god. Even sober thinkers like Alcuin came to the same conclusion, admonishing the Northumbrian clergy for straying too far and bringing down upon them the wrath of the Almighty. Lindisfarne was a serious blow for Northern Christianity, and it still resonates with audiences today when we speak about it. And yet... Despite that attack and all its ferocity and atrocities that came with it, we know that religious life in Lindisfarne continued into the 9th century, meaning that after that attack, they came right back and continued doing their business. We're told, in fact, that during the reign of Bishop Egred, he was the guy who took control of the monastery from 830 to 845, the community of Lindisfarne took a saintly body from the site and departed those lands. It's often assumed that this was the body of St. Aidan, though it might have been Cuthbert. And if it was Cuthbert, something fishy happened shortly after this record, because the body was either returned or it was never removed at all, because the records indicate that the saint's body was removed 30 years later in 875 once again. I mean, maybe they just took him out for a bit of a holiday and put him back. 
Whatever the case, though, following one of the best-known and heavily recorded Viking attacks, and frankly, one of the most brutal attacks if we believe the records, the religious community at Lindisfarne continued there for more than 70 years. And you have to understand that Lindisfarne was out there on the raggedy edge. It was a prime target for raiders. The attack on Lindisfarne was probably only one of many. The monastery of Iona had a similar problem. It too was easily accessible by sea, and it was attacked nearly constantly. And even then, it still took decades before the community at Iona decided to pack it in and relocate. So with that evidence, why should we just believe that these monasteries, which have been so resilient in the past, in the face of decades of Viking attacks, would suddenly just fold at the mere appearance of the great heathen army? And we should remember that at this point in Christendom, martyrdom was an active goal for many of the true believers. Dying for your faith would have been part of the narrative of Christian life. So the idea that all of a sudden, once Olaf and Sven showed up, everyone closed shop and just packed it in? Well, that just doesn't seem right to me. And given that the archaeological record, as well as church records, indicate that many of these religious houses continued into the 10th century, and also given how quickly Scandinavians converted, and how the cultural indications strongly suggest that there wasn't a religious war, I think it's really unlikely that everyone was killed outright, the British church was shattered, and everybody just packed up and moved south. The narrative that tells us that these religious houses closed as a response to religious persecution really goes against the cultural grain for both the English and the Danes. But let's go back to Lindisfarne for a moment and talk about that road trip with the body of St. Aidan that took place in about 875. See, the story goes that not long after the Danes showed up and looked to stay for good, the monks of Lindisfarne were so beset by religious persecution by the heathens that they packed up the body of Cuthbert, maybe again, and struck out into the wilderness. So we're told of a community of broken followers of Christ and their holy mummy wandering the land. That story sounds tragic. And you'll hear of it often if you go looking into this period. It also sounds a bit like the book of Exodus. And I don't think that's a mistake. St. Patrick seems to have cribbed from the book of Exodus when he told his life story and how he wandered for weeks on end through the uninhabited, barren, and completely fallow land that we know as Britain. It was practically Mars in his account. And with this story of the wandering of Lindisfarne, we get a similar vibe. We're told that they left at around 875, and that they were pitiable wanderers until around 883, when they then settled in Durham at chester le Strait. And the common story is that it wouldn't be for more than 100 years before the monks of Durham would return and refound the monastery at Lindisfarne. It's a killer story. The holy men of Lindisfarne sent into their own form of exodus, like Moses and the Hebrews, before finally returning to their holy land more than a century later. It's simply awesome. I love it. But it has issues. First of all, many scholars have pointed out that their path very well might have been more along the lines of the community migrating to their various possessions. Lindisfarne wasn't exactly poor. They had a lot of land. 
And the reason they were on the road for so long, about eight years, might have been because they were traveling among their own possessions, rather than being truly homeless vagabonds who were on the road with a corpse, like some sort of really depressing weekend at Bernie's. Additionally, John Blair and other scholars have taken note that there are archaeological signs of continued ecclesiastical life in Lindisfarne during the period when the site was reportedly abandoned. For example, when the Church of St. Mary was examined, it was determined that the alignment, the dating of the preserved fabric on the east wall of the nave, and even its location all indicate that it was constructed long before the period in which it was attested to in the record. Now that's really important because it gives us an indication that our written record is defective. And I know, as a BHP peer, you're not surprised by this. Bad records are pretty much our bread and butter in this show. However, that's actually a rather groundbreaking statement that Blair and others have made. Since, for about the last millennia, We've just been taking these records on faith and assuming that they accurately reflect the state of the Northern Church. But it looks like they might not. So the community at Lindisfarne might have actually gone and taken a road trip, but they might have just been going among their own possessions before settling in Durham, which isn't really homeless wandering so much as, you know, taking a sabbatical. And while they are gone, it looks like there are still some people who are holding down the fort, at least for a while. Frankly, a lot of these stories have problems. When we look at the tales of destructions of other houses, we find similar problems. So here's something that I really want you to understand. Earlier historians had a bad habit of just looking at the written record, and then, if they absolutely had to, they would look at the archaeological record. But only insofar as it confirmed what was in the written record. There is a firm split between the two, and you can actually see remnants of this split in universities today. A lot of times, history is still housed within the humanities departments, while archaeology is housed within the social sciences. And more often than not, these two departments in the same schools rarely interact with each other because they've been built around separate specialties. So, if an Anglo-Saxon historian needs an expert in Anglo-Saxon burials, she'll likely find them housed in a completely separate area of the university. Which is crazy when you think about it, but it's a result of how these disciplines not only grew up separately, but historians often look down on archaeological and material evidence. Historians weren't in the archaeology departments, and archaeologists weren't in the history departments. Now, things are starting to be done differently now, and we're the better for it. But originally, when historians were looking at the archaeological finds at the church of, say, St. Alkmund, and they saw that there was evidence of rebuilding and construction in the 9th century, meaning rebuilding and construction at around the same time as the great heathen army, those historians took it as evidence that the site had been neglected and abandoned due to those nasty Scandinavians and their Thor-worshipping ways. It doesn't seem to have crossed their minds that the 12th century stories that they were relying on were incorrect. Instead, they somehow took it as evidence of the neglect and destruction of the church property that, quote, can be equated with the period of Danish rule and the foundation of Derby as one of the five boroughs, end quote. Are you getting what happened there? They interpreted the renovation of a church as further proof of Danish persecution of the churches. You have to do some serious backflips to get to that kind of conclusion. 
And the fact is that there's no evidence in the archaeological record of neglect or destruction at St. Alkmund during the period of Danish rule. And frankly, Darby was an important possession of the Danes. So the idea that it would be left to decay is strange all on its own. But when we finally accept the fact that there really isn't an indication that it was left to decay, well, it becomes pretty clear that the earlier historians were relying entirely on their written record and were dreaming up explanations for the construction that would comport with their assumptions that there was an attack upon Christianity during this period, because they prized the written record above all else. Does that make sense? We see the same stuff with the story of the destruction of Ely, actually. There's tremendous problems there, and there are indications within its own history that suggests a continuous religious presence there. The truth is that constructions, repairs, reconstructions, and all sorts of other work happened all the time in Christian communities. They did this work before the great heathen army showed up, they did it after, and it looks like they might have done it right in the middle as well. And if that evidence doesn't comport with the written record, it's important to take that into account rather than to try and twist it into a way that makes the written record make sense. We did not invent lying, mythology, and propaganda in the last 20 or 30 years. It's always been around. One more thing you should know about this period is that at the same time that we're being told that all these Scandinavians were bringing an end to Anglo-Saxon monasteries... We're also finding that at these same monasteries, there are some high-status church burials dated to the 10th century. That means that there were individuals who lived through the late 9th century and got into the 10th century with enough status to have earned a fancy Christian burial at a supposedly abandoned monastery. And this is why it's so important to take archaeology into account rather than just trusting the written record on faith. But to be fair there were some religious houses that closed during the period of the Great Heathen Army. And the question you should be asking is, if the Christians weren't being persecuted by the Danes for their faith, why did those houses close? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. But one big one might have been the Anglo-Saxon nobility. We already discussed in earlier episodes about how the nobility frequently schemed to seize the property of their own religious institutions either by taking the land outright or by positioning family members in ways that gained control over the land and wealth of the religious houses, which they then eventually used to their advantage. The Anglo-Saxon nobles had a long and storied history of looting the church whenever they felt they could get away with it. The House of Wessex in particular was pretty good at it, but don't forget that we've had multiple kings of Mercia and Northumbria who have been cursed by archbishops and admonished by the chroniclers for their treatment of the church. And the time where the wealth and power of the church institutions were most at threat were in times of chaos. Those were times when the nobles would be able to find excuses, or at least hope that no one noticed what they'd done. So, the seizure of church property tended to increase during times of strain. If everyone was fighting or panicking, that really was the best time to steal some land from Brother Unferth. After all, who is he going to complain to? And we've seen it happen again and again in our story. And that fact is critical to our analysis, because shortly before the Danes came in and conquered Jorvik, Northumbria was racked with a very long civil war between Kings Alla and Osbert. And honestly, 
that would have been prime time to grab some land. Especially if the bishop or abbess in question wasn't your sworn ally. People always gloss over this part of the story. But it's not like Northumbria was Shangri-La. It was a mess long before Ivor showed up. And civil wars are ugly business. In the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, you did not need to ride a drakkar or worship Odin to raid the church. It was equal opportunity. However, there was something else that might have spurred on these closures that we haven't spoken about yet. King Egbert of Wessex. Do you remember him? He was Alfred's grandfather and the guy who spent a bunch of time at the court of Charlemagne. Well, when he came back and made all those reforms starting in 802, we generally spoke about it positively. And that's for good reason. Generally, it was positive. King Egbert did a great deal to advance the infrastructure and bureaucracy of Wessex, and ultimately, England. However, not all Carolingian reforms are equal, and one of those reforms was a concerted effort to put a stop to mixed communities in religious houses. Now, many religious houses before these reforms had both monks and nuns, but the Reformation sought to create single-sex institutions. After the reforms, the idea was that you'd either be in a frat or a sorority. Co-ed Christian dorms were less and less of an option. And that was a problem for the nunneries, because at about the same time as these reforms came into power, we also see a decline in land grants to nunneries and an increasing degree of hostility towards female inheritance. Wessex in particular was at the vanguard of this push, refusing to even grant the title of queen to the wife of their king. And following that shift, nobles stopped using nunneries as a way to safeguard their lands and trust. And you can see why, can't you? The winds were changing, and an all-female religious house, in the face of increased hostility towards women in positions of power, might not be able to hold those lands effectively for you. As soon as some man said that he wanted to have them, what's the abbess going to be able to do? And thus, within a few decades, we start to see an increasing number of nunneries closing. And as for hard evidence of Scandinavian involvement in these closures, I can't find any. It appears that the Anglo-Saxons managed to collapse many of these institutions all on their own. To be super clear, though, I am not saying that the religious communities didn't suffer. Nor am I saying that they were free from harm and theft. The Scandinavians were conquerors, and I see no reason to believe that they wouldn't behave as conquerors generally do. Taking the best lands the shiniest objects, and taking just about anything else they wanted would have been par for the course once they established their dominion. I'm also not saying that there weren't concerns for the future of Christianity in Britain. It appears there was. We even see provisions in charters that grant land, quote, as long as the Christian faith should last in Britain, end quote. And I think that provision speaks for itself. With the arrival of these pagans and Christ's apparent abandonment of the Anglo-Saxons, this must have felt like the sign of the end times for many of the devout. They were already primed to view these things in religious terms, and this would have seemed like a pretty big sign. So, I'm not denying that some contemporary Anglo-Saxons would have viewed the coming of the Danes through a theological lens. Furthermore, I'm not saying that the Danes didn't destroy records, 
We have a dearth of records for Danish-held territories, and I'm pretty damn sure the Danes had something to do with that. I mean, if I was them, I would definitely torch those records. If you're trying to establish yourself as a master of a conquered people, one of the first things you're going to want to do is wipe out their history and, of course, any sort of common identity that they can unite behind. You're going to want them to see themselves as part of your people now, or at least servants of your people. So the records, which largely would have been either the histories of the people or legal records of the ruling class, would definitely have to go. Though, to be fair, some scholars have pointed out that literacy was already in a significant decline during this period, thanks to the nobility stacking the religious houses with their spare family members. Even the famed monks of Canterbury saw a decline in the number and quality of their scribes. And that was Canterbury, which appears to have been far more serious and devout than some of the northern churches. Don't forget that it wasn't all that long ago that we had letters admonishing the northern monks for their drunken orgies. And then you have the issue of how fragile these documents are, and how rodents, cats, a leaky roof, or even a monk drunkenly falling asleep without putting the candle out could quickly destroy many of these documents. So we have to be mindful that much of this gap in our records might just be the result of reduced emphasis on literacy, or really anything that wasn't directly booze-related, combined with the normal decay of records that aren't meticulously cared for. Or it could have been the new Danish ruling class doing what conquerors tend to do, taking measures to destroy any sense of unity that could spark rebellion. What I'm trying to get at, though, is that I'm not denying any of those things. I am by no means trying to assert that these people were cuddly, lovey people who wanted to put a lutefisk in every pot. They were killers, and they were here to rule. The only argument that I'm making is that there's no contemporary evidence that the Danes were religiously motivated, or that they were specifically persecuting religious institutions. Rather, any impact the church suffered likely had to do with purely political and temporal motivations. The churches had money. They had land. They had records. And based upon the indications in the archaeological record, as well as some written records, provided that the religious institutions didn't push back against their new masters, it seems that they stood a good chance of continuing to operate. Furthermore, many of the churches that earlier scholars routinely appointed to as evidence of fallout from Danish persecution have significant problems. Some have construction occurring during the alleged abandonment, others have continuing burials, others have traditions that suggest continued status and operation. For example, some became influential mother churches of smaller communities. The point is, that the simple tale that we've been told of a religiously motivated group of bearded maniacs, it just isn't quite right. Now, some communities may have closed up during this period due to the actions of the Scandinavians. In fact, there are a few large communities that appear to have completely shut their doors. So there clearly were institutions that buckled under the strain of this period, either from war, heavy taxation, or outright looting. But the point that I'm trying to make is that it's far less than what the 12th century writers would have you believe. And even those communities likely shut their doors due to the sorts of actions that they had already been suffering from their own nobility. And those nobles were probably acting under the same motivations as the Danes. 
basically a desire for money and land. Personally, I think the evidence is pretty clear that many, if not most, of the religious communities in Danish-controlled Britain continued following the Great Heathen Army. But on the flip side, I also think the evidence is pretty clear that their economic strength was significantly diminished by the time that we see them 200 years later in the Doomsday Book. What we can't know for certain right now, though, is whether the loss of their lands and wealth was the result of 9th and 10th century seizures by the Danes, or due to earlier seizures by the Anglo-Saxon nobles, or as the result of some other circumstance. Frankly, it could be a mix, and their downfall was due to Anglo-Saxon bad behavior and Danish bad behavior. And the answer might depend on the individual house in question. But the important takeaway here is that we can't pin the responsibility upon the Danes with any degree of certainty, despite the stories we've been told in school. So, all this leads us to another question. If the churches continued and just found themselves a bit poorer, and a bit more focused upon agricultural matters to appease their new landlords. You know, food rents would have to be paid, and all those tax exemptions that they've been enjoying weren't guaranteed to continue now that Jarl Olaf was in charge. So, rather than partying like the rich kids that most of them were, they were now probably hard at work in the fields. But with regard to their ecclesiastical lives, what did that look like in this brave new world? That's a really interesting discussion, And to start to answer it, I'd like to ask you a question related to Christian carvings and sculpture, meaning stone crosses and other reliefs depicting biblical stories. And the question is this, when do you think that there were more copies of Christian carvings and sculpture in the northern Anglo-Saxon territories? Were there more in the Anglo-Saxon dominated centuries of the 700s and early 800s? Or... Were there more in the period after the Danes fully established their control of the North, meaning the 900s? What do you think? Well, just based on the virtue of me asking the question, I'm sure you've already guessed the answer. But imagine that you hadn't just listened to the last two episodes. You'd probably assume that the Christ-hating, Thor-worshipping Danes were out there stomping out all traces of Christianity and erecting huge monuments to Freyr and his wondrous knob, right? But the truth is that rather than Christian sculptures vanishing during this period, or being hidden safely in secret, tucked into dark recesses of caves and the like, instead, these sculptures flourished. There were five times as many Christian sculptures in the 900s as there had been in the two preceding pre-Danish centuries. And they're also found in three times as many locations as they were before the Danes showed up. So not only were there more, they were also more prevalent all throughout the region. Beyond the sheer number of them, and also their timing, These carvings are absolutely fascinating and incredibly important because they tell us a hell of a lot. The truth is that spotting the formation of churches is remarkably difficult during this period. We can identify them pretty easily once they're in the written record, but usually when a church is in the record, it's because it's so large it's getting a gift from the nobility or is prestigious enough to house members of the royal family, or its leader was out there witnessing a charter or something like that. So as a consequence, the record isn't that good at telling us when a religious community was formed, just when it became important. 
And this is especially true when you have a religious community that wasn't founded by a noble family member who was close to Alfred, or another important figure that the scribes were paying attention to. As a consequence of this, not only do we not know when many religious communities are founded, a bunch of them are just invisible to us in general. And unfortunately, burials don't help us out all that much either, because many burials don't include burial goods. And even the ones that do, don't necessarily contain explicitly religious burial goods. Consequently, archaeologists are left looking at the placement of bodies and trying to divine whether or not a person was Christian based upon whether or not the body was placed in an east-west orientation, or something like that. It's really tough stuff, and it leaves a lot of holes, especially among the common folk, who were the vast majority of the population. But then... Into that vacuum, we suddenly have stone sculptures of crosses and other important Christian images. And that's huge. Suddenly, we have physical indications of religious communities in specific regions long before we see anything reflected in the written record. Furthermore, because we're looking at artistic representations, we're able to directly link these sculptures to the Scandinavians, because the style of the carvings reflects Scandinavian artistic influences. As a consequence, even though dating things like this is really difficult, specialists have been able to date the sculptures within a 50-year period, which is actually pretty good. And think about what these finds are telling us we're getting a lot of really suggestive evidence of a flourishing Christian community in the Scandinavian-dominated North. Not only that, but due to the mix of Scandinavian styles and iconography, along with Anglo-Saxon Christian iconography and styles, we're seeing a blending of cultures. We're even seeing Scandinavian influences upon Christian crosses. And notably, secular figures in these carvings remain largely absent. It's mostly religious. Scholars have suggested that this means that the teachings of Christ were being presented to the Danes in terms that they would understand, and that parallels were being drawn between the two cultures. Sigurd seems to have been connected to the Eucharist and the defeat of evil. It's also been suggested that John the Baptist was connected to Waylon the Smith. Ragnarok seems to have been connected to the Passion of the Christ. Furthermore, scholars argue that the animals that appear, while they do have Scandinavian qualities, also reflect Anglo-Saxon styles. So we've got a merging of artistic styles in addition to the merging of mythologies. Now, there is still a raging debate as to who the armed figures in many of these sculptures are, and whether they're mythic or a reflection of legends. But even if these were mythic figures, for example, some people think that they're figures from Beowulf, incorporating heroic figures into the reliefs shows that the Christian church was pretty much doing exactly what they've been doing since their earliest days, finding common ground with existing stories and ethics and using that as a starting point for conversion. And considering that these symbols exploded in the north with a 500% increase in availability, I think it's pretty safe to say that it was successful. It's not exactly the story of persecution and domination that we were expecting, is it? And I find this turn in the Northern Church absolutely fascinating. 
Their riches might have been seized. Their documents might have been taken away or destroyed. They may have lost their lands to greedy landlords, either Danish or Anglo-Saxon. But it appears that these struggles and their newfound poverty had a profound effect upon the Christian communities in the North. The Northern Anglo-Saxon religious houses, many of which had been operating like boozy retreats for the wealthy, suddenly became far more ascetic and focused upon doing good works. Their members appear to have rediscovered missionary works. And in the face of this conquest, the Christian faith had strengthened. And as a result, we see that there's a flourishing of new Christian communities and churches in Northern England and an apparent merging of English and Scandinavian cultures. It changed the North forever. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter. Just find us at British Podcast. And you can find all our other communities by going to thebritishhistorypodcast.com and looking in the upper right-hand corner. All right. Thanks for listening. <laughs>